Well, good morning. How are you this morning? Good, good. Indeed, uh, River of Life has been uh, the anchoring of my visits to this country. And some of the most amazing, magnificent moments uh, in my memory, in my entire memory, the span of my memory, have occurred within this building and among this people. So I'm profoundly grateful uh, for my relationship with you. Uh, on Sunday mornings, after I'm usually through with uh, the schools or conferences, it is my privilege to speak to you as just a local family of believers. And in that time, I have been, uh, uh, I've experienced with you some of the most um, trying of your moments, such as the time when uh, five young people perished, and I came uh, probably a week or so after, and uh, the wounds were raw, and um, the Lord uh, used my coming in some capacity as a balm uh, for the wounds. But I've also inflicted great wounds on you. Um, I'm the one from this very place who spoke the word of the Lord that uh, sent your beloved pastor, uh, Apostle Thomo Naidu, up to uh, Santon and... Uh, into the world. He had already been in the world, but uh, there was a releasing. And I understand that uh, when these tremendous moments come about in our lives, there is a, um, in some ways a, a, rend, a rending, a tearing. And uh, those things are very hard to do. You must understand that I take no pleasure in your suffering because I too have suffered uh, in the course of my life and I understand as you do the pain of suffering. But I, I have found that it seems to please the Lord to entrust into the hands of men of peace the activities that are ex of extreme violence perhaps precisely because we do not love violence. You know, the place I would much rather be at, on any given day, uh, no offense intended, but would be in, in my home in New Mexico with my wife. I do not love the road, and uh, although I've seen more than my share of it, perhaps, in the course of my life, I'm actually a very simple person, um, and the things I desire are rather simple. I like to sit in my backyard, for example, and listen to the sounds of the night and, um, and pray. And, uh, those, those are, are um, especially valuable moments. I rarely turn the, the radio on in the car, in my car, because I just want time to think. You know. So... Although I cannot apologize for the moments of uh, inflicting pain upon you, 
uh, I do feel the pain of it with you, and the grief. And to the extent that in the mercy of God, he sends me back and forth, I come and I attempt to apply in the season of, the, of it uh, balm to soothe the wounds. Life is a journey, you know. Life is a journey. And it may be either a journey that you notice as it unfolds, or it may be a journey that simply unfolds and then by the time you notice it, most of it is gone. But if you're intentional about the journey of life, you'll understand that sometimes our sufferings and our trials are the signposts that tell us where we are on the journey. And it is inevitable. This, in this journey, the scenery will change. And that is inevitable. When God put man into the earth, what he constructed, what he constructed out of the delight of his love was a, a spirit issued out of his own person. So that spirit is compatible with God on every level because its origin was from God himself. We're not a different spirit from God. Angels are different spirits. But the character of our spirit, having been issued out of God, was designed to be compatible with God. And when we stray away from God, and he brings us back to himself, his intention is to reconcile us to himself. So that this journey of life is one in which we experience in the venue of time and space the absolute reality of the living God. And for the most part, being oblivious to that, we simply drift through life, cluttering our thoughts, cluttering our activities with acquisitive behavior to support that aspect of our being that by definition was constructed to pass away. But when we return to the Lord, he gives us something we've called grace to live in him to move in him and to have our very being in him the native environment in which god designed man to live in the earth the totality of that environment is himself. We may live in him. Which is to say, we may feed upon him. We may move in him. We may go about the world. We may, our movements in the earth, our activities, our purposeful, intentional uh, doings in the earth, our accomplishments, our careers, our lives as families and as individuals, our goings back and forth, 
may be in him. We may move in him. When we are promoted or demoted, we may be in him. And in him we may have our very being. That is, we may be defined in this world by our relationship to him. And so, though we are absent, Though we are present in the body and absent from the Lord, yet we are at home in him. So that when the journey of this life ends, what remains altogether is our fellowship with him. And in that capacity, you see, you cannot die. In that capacity, you have participated all along in life that is supported from the realm of the eternal. And in that capacity of life, you are ageless, you are timeless, because eternity consists of long ages past, it consists of the present, and it consists of endless ages to come. So this journey that we call life, is perhaps the greatest surprise of it all is the brevity of it in relationship to the totality of our existence. So it asks the question, why are we here? Why in this life? And the answer, quite simply, is to be conformed to the likeness of Son. To be conformed to the likeness of Son. Son. Because the purpose for issuing us into time and space was the deepest affection in the heart of God. For whatever else God may be, His most complete identity the one by which he would choose to be understood and revealed is the identity of father. And you cannot be a father unless you have an offspring. And in fact, the very designation father presupposes offspring. It is impossible to be called a father if you have no offspring. In living in him, in moving in him, in having our very being in him, what he's telling us is there is a manner of life that is available to us in this world that is meant to be supported entirely by the substance of his being. And uh, that substance of his being that support us, supports us all together is what we refer to as grace. Grace. Charis. Grace. Characteristics of grace may include mercy, which has to do with when grace is given, 
and the circumstances, how you define the circumstances into which grace may be given. Mercy may be a characteristic of that. But we have typically confused mercy and grace. See, mercy is a motivation. It draws out grace. But grace is an economy. Grace is an enabling. Grace is the substance that accomplishes the task. Mercy may sometimes determine when grace is given. Today I want to speak about the substance of grace. And in doing so, we're not speaking only about who God is, but how his economy works. What does grace look like? What may you look for when grace is given to you? What are the characteristics of this grace? How may you recognize them? And how may you apprehend them? Now I've talked to you much about suffering. And I've explained to you that suffering is designed in principal part to eliminate the darkness in us that is the result of the cosmos, which is that entire construction of thought and practice that induces us to rely on it rather than on God whenever we live in the preeminence of the soul. Because the eyes of the soul were opened, and the spirit became dormant, and man has lived in that condition primarily since that time, when we are returned to the Lord, the eyes of our souls need to be closed, and the eyes of our spirit need to be opened, and the man is restored to the fashion of his creation. And all of the sufferings, all of the trials that you go through are meant to be fire, purging fire, raging intense fire, so that nothing of our intentions to rely upon the soul and nothing of the pretense to integrity that our souls have embraced may remain in us. That is why God puts you through suffering. It is why every suffering you've gone through that has been ordained or permitted by God's hand has been to break down the considerable hold of the soul upon our thinking and upon the direction of our being. So much so that in the flames of this purgation, in the flames of this purging and cleansing, the glory of God in you is separated from the dross, the contamination of thought, action, uh, uh, sin that has defined you and simultaneously is your default and your entrapment. It's what you go back to 
and what you permit your enemy to bring to your attention as a way of holding you in that place. If God were to allow that, then he would disallow the possibility of you living in him, moving in him, and having your very being in him. But we must not think, and this is, this is part of the trap, what our enemy says to us is, but that all is so familiar, and you're so good at it, that if that were taken away from you, what will you have left? How will you go? What will you do? How will you make it in the world? Is it in fact possible to eat of him and live? What is this thing about man shall not live on bread alone, but surely God knows that we need bread? So, what is this about seeking the kingdom? What am I to be seeking when I'm seeking the kingdom? And the answers typically fall way short of what is true. Such as, if we seek the kingdom, we're, that, means we, that translates into being faithful church members. But we've already, in our religious practices, bifurcated or divided um, our lives into religious activities, which we do primarily on Sundays and sometimes during the week, and the rest of our activities from which we actually derive a living. So it's hard for us to bridge the gap to think that we may actually live every day in him, move every day in him, have our very being every day in him, and by doing that and pursuing that and being that, we'll also have bread. We'll also have finances. So I'm here to say to you, the problem is not that you cannot live in him or move in him or have your totality of life in him. The problem is we must get rid of the thinking that says we, we do that sometimes and in certain ways and not at other times and in not in other ways. You see? There's a totality of life possible in Christ and it contains everything necessary for life and godliness. But it begins with the higher order of the spirit, which then governs the soul, and it depends entirely for its functionality and for its result. It depends entirely upon the fact that there indeed is a living God, and that he is your father. Can you hear me? You may live in him, move in him, and have your, your very big, the totality of life in all of its nuances, the decisions as to whom you marry, what children are given to you, who are these children when they're put into your lives, what choices and decisions you make with respect to career paths and opportunities, what you may expect and, what, uh, and how you may interpret the disappointments of your, the whole substance of life is what is implied. It's not some, some of this and then most of that. Our problem is we don't see how to apply this, which is our church life, 
to that which is the rest of our lives. And I'm saying, let's begin with the fact that it is all of our lives. It's totally encompassing of our lives because it is another way to live. It is not merely things we do on Sundays. When we come together on Sundays, the benefit of it in part is to experience corporately uh, the reality of this presence. But it ought not be the booster shot, if you like, that we get once in a while. And we may hear things in these intentional gatherings that might bring um, context to things we've already been shown or we're, we're being presented with. Okay. So in our gatherings, whenever they occur, there is purposeful and intentional um, results to aid us in this matter, but they're not a substitute for the life itself. So we need to access the very being of God in ways that are profoundly practical, reliable, knowable, with consistency. Now the reason you're hearing this sound at this time in the world is because this is what Paul would characterize as a message of wisdom among the mature. When he went to the Corinthians, he said, I made a decision before I elected to come to you that while I was with you, I would choose to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The reason is, you're still infants. You ought to by now have been um, mature, but you're still carnal. The word carnal means of the flesh and is synonymous with being governed by the soul. So he said, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal. But he said, but we do have a message of wisdom among the mature, but it's not the wisdom of this world. Is the wisdom of the invisible realm that permeates the natural order of our lives and being, and we may inhabit that. We may inhabit that environment as surely as you inhabit your physical environments. You may inhabit the environment of the spirit because you may live in it like you live in your house. You may move in it like you move in your community. And you may, have, you may be defined by it like you're defined by the factors that define you, such as your job, your family life, and the like. It's an alternative. So, if this environment we call grace does exist, and if it is guaranteed by the very being of God, then what does it look like? Because your sufferings and the refining fire are designed to bring you to that, to remove the dross and to reproduce the purity of spirit that you were given originally from God so that now you may fellowship with God in the beauty of His holiness 
as a partaker of his divine nature with the legitimate positioning of son. So, what is this environment in which you live and move and have your very being? I want to begin with a reading from the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, and I want to look at verse 6. I want to take some time to just lay this out deliberately. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. The nature of God sent out into the earth. So in our venue, when you experience the substance of God in our venue, he comes as seven horns and seven eyes. Now, a horn on an animal is its economy. It's its strength. It's both its defense and its ability to get its way. Over in uh, Botswana, I had the opportunity to, to visit the Chobi Reserve and uh, they have these massive um, water buffalo with incredible horns. And they call these, these creatures the Dugger Boys. Have you ever heard of that one? The Dugger Boys. Anybody in here? Raise your hand if you heard that expression. The Dugger Boys. Yeah. And that's because they have this capacity with their horns to scoop up the, the mud at the banks of the, of the river, of the Chobi and Zambezi rivers, and throw the mud back over on their bodies, which are covered, of course, with dark hide, and cool themselves. But the lions are also quite afraid of the horns of the Dugger boy. So when a lion is on the prowl, the Duggar boys, the males, would form a circle around the females and the, the calves. And the lions know better than to attack the Duggar boys uh, directly. Uh, and you don't ever want to be uh, in, the, um, in the line of fire, so to speak, of the horns of the Duggar boy. So in the world and in creatures with horns, the horn is an indication of the power, the transfer of power of the animal. And it corresponds, in our thinking, it corresponds to the economy, the power that supports. Seven horns, 
The term seven refers to, of course, the completeness of his power. And seven eyes. The eyes, of course, are the ways to see. And the seven eyes indicate the completeness of vision. So the presence of God in the earth, the spirit of God in the earth, is characterized by the language seven horns and seven eyes. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Now, earlier on in uh, Revelation, I think it was chapter 4, there was a reference to another of these sevens. Verse 5, And from the throne proceeded, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices from the throne of God Almighty. Seven lamps of fire were blazing before the throne. These are the seven spirits of God. So there's a third characteristic to God. Lamps. Lamps are for illumination. You may be able to see, but if darkness is all around you, then you can't see very much. So the lamps are different from the sight. Lamps refer to illumination. The spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might see. Paul said, I long to come to you to impart the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might see how long and high and wide and deep is the love of God. So, as you come to understanding the substance of grace, you will enter an environment of illumination. And the illumination comes in the form of wisdom and revelation. And the intent is to restore the sight that was lost when the eyes of the soul were opened and the eyes of the spirit were closed And from that time on, men walked in darkness. So profound has that darkness come to be that we stumble in it as men who are drunk at night trying to find their ways home. So when you come back to God, that aspect of God that is available in the earth, these are the seven spirits of God sent forth into the earth. When you touch the substance of God in the earth, you have entered an environment of illumination through wisdom and revelation, and the intent is that you might see and participate in the economy of God, the horns of God, if you like, the power by which he both defends protects, and enables. All right? So how do these seven... If if we were to look at the seven characteristics of grace, grace comes in five administrations, but each of the five administrations 
has seven characteristics to it. Anytime grace appears, you will see the seven characteristics of grace. And they're meant to cause you to live in the environment of God himself. So, let's go back here to Isaiah. To look at, uh, and we'll look at Isaiah 11 for a moment. To look at the functioning of the characteristics of God within the environment of grace. So we may see and understand God as he functions for us. Now, the obvious advantage to all of this is once you can see, you can recognize, oh, this is what God is doing, or this is what God is saying, or this is what God means for me to learn. And your must form from one who's walking in darkness. And when you walk in darkness, you live in the fearful anticipation of an ambush. Right? Whenever you walk in darkness, what is the fear when you walk in darkness? What is the fear that, uh, of, that, that, that stalks you like an animal in the darkness? It's a fear of an ambush. You don't have to, I mean, just being in an environment of darkness produces the rapid, uh, an increased rapidity in the palpation of the heart, rise in your blood, and nothing has happened. You're just in darkness. You You are keenly aware of your vulnerability when you walk in darkness. In fact, you're not trying to see things in the darkness. You're preoccupied with not lowering your guard or letting down. That is why the moment that Adam separated himself from his father, he was in darkness and he was afraid of an ambush. Because an ambush is a surprise designed to take advantage of you and to, uh, and to use your strength against you or at least to neutralize your strength so it is of no particular benefit to you. That's how ambushes work. That's how fear works. So you live on the edge when you walk in darkness. But as you enter this environment of light, the, the, the entire state of being is meant to change. Now here is what it looks like when you live in him. Here is what it looks like when you live in the provisions of his being in the earth. These are the seven spirits of God that have gone out into the earth. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod. A rod. Think of measuring stick. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Don't think of a, an instrument for beating children. That's how we've thought about it. But an angel was given a rod and told to go and measure the city. Measure its foundations and measure its people. That's about a standard. 
right? So this measuring stick, this standard of righteousness will come back into the earth through the rootstock of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit, here the first of the seven, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now this is the Spirit of rule, the Spirit of lordship, the Spirit of one who has triumphed and overcome, to whom all things in his, in his environment are subject. The first characteristic of grace is rule. It means that there is nothing in the environment that can overthrow you. So even if darkness were around you, and indeed it is not because it's light, you live now in an environment of light, but even if that were the case, and an ambush were formed against you, it could not overcome you. But if there's something of the darkness still in you, reaching for you, then in the moment when you would ordinarily rule over it, it'll turn the tables on you, and, you, and it, will, it, it will rule over you. So if you had the task of preparing somebody to access the grace of rule, what would you do in preparation to get them to the place where they can rule? Would you not take them through every potential scenario or every scenario that would allow for that thing that remains yet hidden in them, which when it erupts suddenly as a surprise in an ambush, would overthrow them, would you not see to it in the days of their preparation that that thing was found at its roots and overthrown and destroyed and eradicated from them so that when they are given the opportunity to rule, they were, they're fully prepared for it? Would you not do that? And indeed, if you are the father whose responsibility is to discipline your son to eradicate that, would that not be your primary duty? Yes, it would be. And would it be love if you failed to do that, knowing what it will cost them? So whomever he loves, he disciplines. Why? so that you may share in the glory of his rule. Because you live in him. Whose rule is it? His. And you are in Christ. Father, let them be one in the fashion in which we are one. So if there is a possibility of the adversary using the scorpions to overthrow you, what would God do for you in advance? Knowing that where he's going to take you, he'll have the scorpions sting you. Just to show you, you don't need to be afraid of scorpions. 
or snakes because in his peaceable kingdom the lion and the lamb lie down together and a child plays on the nest of a scorpion and a snake in his kingdom because he is the Lord of all the domains. Hmm? Do you see how this works? But when you're stung by the scorpion, at that moment, you fear for your life. And it is God who allows you to be stung by the snake or the scorpion so that you know how it feels. So if it should ever come up again, you will say, you look narrowly, the scriptures say, on him and you will say, is this the one who made the nations tremble? When Jesus was on trial himself, Pilate tried to sting him like a scorpion. And what did Jesus say? You have no authority over me unless the one in whom I live and move and have my very being in this present world, unless he gives you authority over me, you, representing the might of Rome, the configuration of the greatest power present on the earth in his day, and himself at the moment a prisoner of that system, says to the operative of that system, when he asks him about a conflict of powers question, do you believe that I have authority to kill you or to set you free? It's a conflict of, of powers question. Is my kingdom greater than your kingdom? In your mind. And Jesus' response is, you don't have any authority over me. What an astonishing thing to say to the Roman emissary. When Rome for fun would, would crucify people. To say to the Roman emissary, stand toe to toe with him, not as his subordinate, but as his superior. Because when you say, being asked the question, in a conflict of powers, in the conflict of representative kingdoms, do you say your kingdom is greater than mine? I've got a legion of, of men out here who are more than enough to sever your head. What do you say? Do I, do you, do I have authority over you? Do you recognize that I have the authority? Jesus, he intended for Jesus to beg him for his life. But Jesus knew that in the earth, the seven spirits of God existed in a, to produce an environment of light and understanding and power. And his answer came not from his uh, Galilean heritage or Jewish heritage. His answer came from his heritage as a son of God. And he could not acknowledge a power on the earth greater than the lordship of God Almighty whose, by whose authority he lived and moved and had his very being. Is this making sense to you? 
God exists in the substance of grace. And the characteristics of these five graces I talked about yesterday, the characteristics of these graces are, number one, this environment you live in, when you live in Him, the substance of God is almighty power. And Pilate was shocked at the answer of this Galilean carpenter. You do not have any authority over me unless the one who sent me has given you authority over me. This is real. This is not Sunday church stuff. This is for all the marbles. This is where you work, where you live, what country you're in. This is about environment of grace versus environment of, of, of the secular. You do not have authority over me unless... So whether I live or I die, my steps are ordered of the Lord and not of you and not of circumstances. When you have been disciplined by the Lord, his intent is that you share in his glory on the earth, on the earth that you share in the glory of God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. And the face that he will wear when he appears as your life is your face. This is powerful stuff. This is reculturing you to what it means to be a son of God. The foolish and the unbelieving cannot enter here. The faithless and the wicked have no place in this fire. Because when you go through the fire of his presence, you pass beyond the pale of being threatened by the things that would appeal to your soul. This is not a message for the simple. This is not a message for people who intend to be mere consumers of grace. But the time has come in the earth to speak such a message as this. Like a trumpet call that wakes the dead. Like the prophecy that gives life to the bones. This is this sound now in the earth. I said to you in one of the sessions, when I started to speak about sonship, I never saw that it was going to require us to become mature sons. I thought, sonship, that's great. You know, and I told you about my little granddaughter who's just arrived, who's a total consumer of services. 
you know. And all she has to do is cry. Her one singular response to everything that is unpleasing or unpleasant in her world is to cry. And everybody attends to her. And in her mind, grace, grace. I probably should have called her grace. But that's where most people still want to stay. And wonder why God lights a fire under them. It is so that you might come to live in the environment where grace comes into the earth in seven characteristics. The first of which is the characteristic of lordship. Now it's obvious that our understanding of how grace functions is through the prism or the paradigm of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. For, see, he lived in this environment of grace to show us that it is possible to live in this environment of grace. That's what he meant when he said, I am in the Father. See, these things, these seven characteristics were simultaneously before the throne of God and lived out in the world in a man who was of the rootstock of Jesse. But the strength and power of his belief and where he stood and what he did and what he said was what he knew was before the throne of God. So in the earth, he did not live in himself. It is fair to say that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. These things represented, these seven spirits represented the choice of Jesus as he faced all of the circumstances of life. He chose to live within these understandings. But these understandings were in the earth because the Spirit of God is in the earth. You see? The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. You see? It wasn't just that Jesus brought these things to the earth. It was that God was in the earth when Jesus was in the earth. And he was as his father. He actually made an appearance at the age of 30 and sounded off, gave a shout out as the young people would say. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. So that everybody knew that he was operating against the background of the reality of the presence of God in the earth in the days of Jesus Christ. And so what he is, is the picture of how these things function in a person. So that you in him may function in the same way because you are in that very person. And the same God who raised Jesus from the dead has raised you to life and this is the life to which he has raised you. So that you may live in him like Jesus lived in him. And you may move in him like Jesus moved in him. In fact, he prayed that 
And he said, Father, let them be one in the fashion in which you and I are one. I in you, you in me, let them be one in us. First let them be in me, and let them therefore be in you in the same manner in which I was in you. Because they're in me. So every place he went in God is available to us because he has not come back out of God. In fact, he never separated himself from God. So we have that dwelling place available to us. And we call that dwelling place the substance of God, also known commonly to us as grace. I'm defining for you what that substance of grace, which is the character of God, what it looks like. One of the main considerations is lordship. That God is God. That there is nothing that may upset or overthrow or move God. And when the one who lived in the grace of lordship was confronted by the ruling kingdom of the earth in his day, he said to that kingdom's representative, you have no authority over me. Unless God gave it to you. And it wasn't just some dispute over a debt or something like that. He was saying, Pilate said, I actually have the authority to execute you, to take your life, which is the ultimate threat that any other authority may issue against us. And Jesus, who lived in the grace of lordship, knowing that God is God, knowing that he cannot be moved, said, you do not have any authority over me. And I'll tell you this, unless God gave it to you. I'll tell you this. If God, if God allows your enemy to have temporary authority over you, there will inevitably come a time when he will vindicate you and cause your enemy to fall down at your feet. Because he will not leave your soul in hell. And he will never allow a holy one to decay in the conviction of a false accusation. He never will. Because he is just. A characteristic of rulership is justice. It's justice. At a minimum, rule is required to be just. And if you use the instrumentality of power to demonstrate your ability to triumph even over death, then inevitably, justice will demand the resurrection of the dead. Are you with me? You see how this works? That's why you cannot suffer indefinitely in the place of a false accusation. Even if God permits it, in the end, your vindication is that he'll raise you up from the dead. And when he does, you cannot be touched again by death. So sometimes the greater thing that he's doing 
is not to keep you from death, but to cancel the fear of death over you. So when he lets you suffer, he might do that exclusively for the purpose of releasing you from the pains of death, from the threat of death. And when, he, when he's finished, he'll raise you up. And when he raises you up, you are a life-giving spirit by reason of the spirit that is within you. And you may speak life over death. And you may say to death, where is your sting? You may say to the grave, tell me where your victory lies. Because I am in him and I have overcome death. So, the accusation as to whether or not Jesus was a fraud and not indeed that he was not indeed who he claimed to be. How does God vindicate him ultimately? He's already vindicated him. He keeps on vindicating him. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at the right hand of God, the majesty on high. And he has decreed that the, the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is the dominant one. Whose knees will have to bow? Pilate's knees will have to bow. Tiberius's knees would have to bow. Tiberius was the emperor in whose reign Jesus was crucified, and at whose behest Pilate execute, granted the authority to execute. They will have to bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the entire Roman nation would have to bow. And every nation that has protested his rule will have to bow. Because there's coming a day when all the nations will gather before the throne of God and from him who sits upon the throne. So Jesus was not just vindicated. Even though God gave Pilate a brief opportunity to put him to death. God means for you to understand that as his sons, if you will trust him, he will rule for your benefit. And even if he permits your discipline by allowing the adversary to have some temporary measure of rule over your physical being, God never grants your enemy Rule over your spirit. The only rule that your enemy may be granted, and that temporarily, is over your body. But what is the destiny of your body anyway? It is to live and then to die. So what rule ultimately does God grant over your enemy? 
to your enemy over you. Only a temporary rule over that which is transitional. So don't think that God is unjust because he lets your enemy have a go at you over the thing that is the least lasting about you. For the purpose of bringing you to a place where he overcomes fear in you. That you might live in the freedom of his rule in the earth. We must see things from a heavenly point of view. Shouldn't we not? It says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, So from now on, we regard no one any longer from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ that way, we do so no longer. Because if any man is in Christ, is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. All this from God, who reconciled us to himself in Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So anything that God gives to your enemy or allows your enemy to do, he will vindicate you in the end in such a way that your enemy is silenced and does not end up having a victory over you. God knows how to smash the jaw of your enemy. He will not leave your soul in hell. His rule is just. His lordship is just. He may be merciful in the execution of justice. But the bottom line is he's never unrighteous in justice. Or in rule. He is always just. We see things from the framework of the immediacy and the urgent. He sees things from the viewpoint of long ages past and endless ages to come. So when we live in him and move in him and have our very being in him, one of the aspects of light, the light of the seven spirits, the seven blazing lamps, one of the things that the blazing lamps illuminate for us, the person of God illuminates for us, is the point of view of God, and therefore the point of view that we ought have. We're obsessed with the myopia, with myopia and with the limitation of vision of just this frame of our lives, just this epoch, just this moment, just these events. And we want to insist that God sees things the same way. And so our prayers to God ask him to join us. Abandon the light of his everlasting vision from age to age, from endless ages, and to adopt a point of view that we have chosen out of our fear of loss. And we are surprised that he does not accommodate us in coming down to those views of reality. If he were to do that, what would he do for us? He would confirm our view of our own vulnerability. Instead, he reaches down and he says to us, come up here and sit with me and I will show you what is to come. 
And within that purview of vision, he allows us to understand his administrations relative to his lordship. When you return to the place of lordship, to settled in, and you're settled into his lordship, then you may sleep in the boat in the midst of the storm. Because you understand you're in him and he's Lord of the storm. You're moving in him. Doesn't matter that your environment is a storm, you're in him. You're in him in the boat. Or perhaps I should say, the boat and the storm are in him and you are in him. There's nothing outside of him. There's nothing that is not subject to him. As you begin to face, when you go forward now, I hoped to have made sense of your trials. I hoped to have made, to have at least given some, some um, contextual format that would allow you to engage suffering in your life from a new point of view. That's really what I hoped for in these messages. I don't have time really to unpack any other of the seven environments of grace, the seven characteristics of the substance of grace. I barely scratched the surface of the discussion of the grace of rule and lordship. But you can see how, can't you see this, Lauren? (laughs) The thing just expands and expands and expands because it's a total... It's a way of living and being in him. Governing every contingency of life. That is why we are called to trust in the Lord. And to lean not on our own understanding. To acknowledge he is present in every circumstance. And look for the path that he gives you in the midst of the torment and tempest. That's what this is. Spirit of lordship, spirit of wisdom. I just want to take less than two minutes just to say a little bit about wisdom. Not so much the substance of wisdom, but the origin of wisdom. Wisdom builds the house of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's not so much your natural body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit within that body that is able to entertain God. The place of connection between you and the Father is spirit to spirit. Spirit to spirit. Therefore, when you engage God, spirit to spirit, you will see things not from a worldly point of view, but from a heavenly point of view. When you see things from a heavenly point of view, your view of any matter is identical to God's view of every matter. 
Therein lies wisdom. You're not, when you see, when you operate in wisdom, you're not operating out of the linear thought process of reason. You're operating out of the revelation of God of the reality of his realm and the wisdom of heaven. So you see things from an eternal point of view. And things in your natural realm and in your specific existence are defined not by the urgencies of life, but from the timelessness of God. If you could see things from God's viewpoint, there would be absolutely no reason or need ever to be afraid. It's the fear of the Lord that replaces the fear of loss that is the beginning of wisdom. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and to establish you among the sanctified. When you suffer, it is that the opportunity for the spirit of glory and of Christ to rest on you. So may great grace, mercy, and peace be with you always until we see again. Amen.